I'd like you to open up your Bibles to the book of Ruth. How many of you guys did the homework this week? Anybody? Oh, good. Some of you are right in there. I like that. The book of Ruth is a very short book in the Old Testament. It's uh, sandwiched between the book of Judges and the book of 1 Samuel. It's a lovely love story. It has uh, tremendous value uh, for us, and we're going to look at, uh, at that. Um, the, the title of this morning's message is, They Asked for a King, Part 2. They Asked for a King, Part 2. It's part of a series, and uh, we're taking a look at the emergence of the, uh, the idea of the Redeemer King uh, in old Israel and subsequently in the New Testament and, uh, and our expectations of what our Redeemer King should look like. Uh, so this is a, a, a biblical theme, very important as we consider Jesus and what he's done for us and how we worship him. Today, it's important for us, I think, to take a, a quick look into the history of a little town called Bethlehem. And uh, we had, at Christmas time, of course, uh, remembered Bethlehem as the place where Jesus was born. But before Jesus was born there, Bethlehem had some fame. Uh, in ancient times, it was the, the place that, uh, uh, from which King David came. It was the city of David. And so uh, we thought, well, take, let's take a look at David's life. But before David, there was actually a story in the Bible uh, that took place in Bethlehem. That was uh, very formative and uh, in actually incredibly theologically valuable for us. And that's, of course, the book of Ruth, because that all took place in Bethlehem. Uh, but before that, even in the book of Judges, Bethlehem has uh, some prominence in two very bizarre stories. How many of you guys have read the book of Judges before? Anybody? Uh, those of you who are on the Bible reading plan, you're going to get there, ooh, I don't know, I think sometime in, in March, maybe. And um, no, no, you're going to get there, yeah, end of March. And... Uh, uh, it's going to be a little weird for you as you read through the book of Judges. You're going to see some pretty bizarre things taking place. And, it's, of course, it's the history of a, of a country that's some 3,000, 3, 4,000 years ago. You're reading this stuff and thinking, my goodness, thank God we live in the 21st century in Western, United, you know, Western world, Eastern United States. You, you can be grateful for where you are. Uh, I'm grateful the times have changed and we have, um, as societies, we've sort of evolved in our value systems. Of course, Judeo-Christian uh, polity has really uh, has really shifted things for us, and I'm grateful for that. But in ancient times, in the times of the judges, Israel was discovering itself as a new, newly founded nation. And uh, for those of you who have been not familiar with the Bible, here's the brief summary: uh, Israel as a nation started with one man. His name is Abraham, and Abraham was a man who followed God and honored God, and God gave him a promise that uh, his offspring would be as many as the sand of the seashore and, uh, and the stars in the sky. And uh, through a series of events, Abraham's uh, sons, his, his, his grandsons, his great-grandsons ended up uh, as a, a slave nation in Egypt. And, uh, and then God set them free. Of course, you've heard the story of Moses. And uh, God set the people free from Egypt, and he brought them through a wilderness journey, uh, traversing the wilderness for some 40 years until he entered, they entered into the Promised Land, finally ready to take what God had given them. And when they did, uh, that was the period of time which we came to know as the time of the judges, before there was a king in Israel. 
they had God as their leader, and they had Moses, of course, uh, had passed on leadership to Joshua, who became a judge over them. And then when Joshua passed away, other people were raised up by God uh, and became judges in various places throughout what was then the newly formed nation of Israel. And uh, they had no king. And so it was a, a theocracy which had been developed, and there was a place, a central place of worship. It was not yet a temple. Uh, it was not yet a city. It was the Ark of the Covenant of God was in the tent of the Lord, and it was stationed in a place called Shiloh. And, uh, and in Shiloh, people would come to seek God, to get answers for tough questions. They would seek from the priests who ministered before the Lord in Shiloh, answers to their questions as they had done with Moses whenever there was a civil uh, case it would come they would come before Moses of course we know the story from old times Moses couldn't deal with the millions of cases so he raised up other leaders elders within Israel who took roles of responsibility to be judges over the people they would come and bring their requests they would bring their questions they would bring all of their their issues and rulings would be made based on the law of God and the law of God was a summary statement. God gave, of course, as you know, the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments were uh, summary statements that, that in, enveloped really essentially the entire, uh, the entire world of our morals and ethics. Uh, and from those basic building blocks, from those pillars, could be drawn many, many different applications. And, uh, and one would hope that the priests who would spend time with God would learn from God and understand God. They'd spend time reading and understanding the legislation that was given them. Uh, and then they would use that to teach the people how to live at peace with one another um, in the midst of a broken humanity. Of course, we know from reading the book of Judges that that didn't work so well. Because we all love our liberties. Can somebody say amen? We love our liberties. Liberties come at great price. Liberties come at, at great cost. Because whenever there's a void of leadership, uh, something rushes in to fill that, doesn't it? Usually the strongest, the fittest, uh, the brightest, um, the, uh, the most hungry for it, the power hungry, they, they fill the void and they begin to take precedence over others. And so that's what happened in the early times. Uh, even though God's word had been given and there was a method of worship that had been given, a prescribed way to worship God, nevertheless, there was a level of, of, of independence that was enjoyed by the people of God because they once were slaves and now they were free. A slave no more, a slave never again, right? And, uh, and I think in many ways we can, we can associate ourselves and our own ideals with that. Uh, we as a nation, uh, the United States of America, are very proud of our independence. And although we were not around for 1776, uh, we celebrate that with, uh, with tremendous gusto, don't we? And uh, when we remember our independence from tyrannical rule and the, uh, the government by the people for the people has become our, our paradise, as it were. Trouble with paradise is that paradise needs rules. And uh, the very basics of paradise, even God's paradise, Eden, was built with prohibition. Uh, there was freedom for Adam and Eve in the garden, but there was also prohibition in the garden. Even in God's most perfect world, there are things you're allowed to do and things you're not allowed to do. You know why? No, neither do I. 
perhaps the greatest, uh, the greatest values that we cherish, the greatest character traits that we cherish, they are formed through choices that are made. Our virtues are displayed when we choose them. They become ours when we choose them. One can say, I'm a patient man, until we are faced with an irritation that gives us rise for impatience. An opportunity for impatience comes, and we may discover that we're not as patient as we thought. As it turns out, value, true value, is displayed when we have choices to make and we choose certain things. The time that you spend displays where your values are. And, uh, and that is just a, a, simp a simple way of looking at this. Well, anyway, in the days of the judges, the people were celebrating their freedoms, but they weren't caring all that much about other people and what their freedoms were or their rights were. As a result, there was somewhat chaos. Somewhat chaos. And these two stories are demonstrated for us towards the end of the book of Judges about this place called Bethlehem. They both occur in and around Bethlehem or they involve somebody from Bethlehem. And so these two stories are a bit bizarre. They're a bit hard to read. I don't really enjoy them. I'm not going to lie. Um, and there's much to be learned from them. But in, uh, in uh, Judges chapter 17, there's a story about this fellow by the name of Micah. Not the same guy who wrote the book of Micah, just by the way, much, much earlier. There's a man uh, from the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. And uh, he said to his mother, this is chapter 17, the, the 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you about which you uttered a curse and also spoke it in my ears. Behold, the silver is actually with me. I took it. And his mother said, blessed be my son by the Lord. <laughs> Interesting. The mother blessed the son who stole her money. And he restored 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son to make a carved image and a metal image. I'm dedicating this money to the Lord so my son can make an idol. Interesting, isn't it? Look at the freedom of worship. She's honoring Yahweh. She uses the name of Yahweh. I'm blessed to be my son by the Lord in my Bible, all capitals, L-O-R-D, which usually represents where the Hebrew word Yahweh is used, the name of the God of Abraham. And uh, so she uses his name. She's Yahwistic, but she's also willing to make a, uh, an idol out of her money, which, by the way, 1,100 pieces of silver was a lot of money. It's the same amount of money that Delilah got for betraying Samson in the previous chapter. Leads uh, scholars to believe that there may be some connection between these two because they're just, just positioned and, uh, and leaves you guessing. Was this man from Ephraim, was he the son of Samson? Was he Delilah's son? Uh, 1,100 pieces of silver, I don't know. There's no way for us to ever know that. Most scholars think no, but it's an interesting idea. Nevertheless, it's a lot of money. And, uh, and she wants to make an idol out of it, which means she's Yahwistic, but she has diverged from the method of worship that God gave. He gave prohibitions with regard to worship. He said, you will not worship the way the other people worship. Read about it in Deuteronomy chapter 12. You will not worship the way the nations worship that are in the land that you're going to possess. I have rejected them for that. You will worship the way I have prescribed. But in all places where freedom is experienced, freedom is stretched. 
We love to stretch our freedoms. Parents, note this. You want to be very gracious to your children. But the more freedoms you give them, the more freedoms they will take. Because freedom loves to be stretched. Therefore, as wise parents, you must do what God did. Establish boundaries. And your boundaries must be firm. You don't have to have very short leashes on them. But there does need to be a leash. There needs to be, uh, you may go so far and no further. There need to be places where they abide by your instruction. Because as you teach them to obey mom and dad, they will learn to obey God. That's just simply the way God teaches us to raise our kids. Anyway, story of Micah, he makes this thing and then he gets himself a priest, finds himself a Levite. And watch this. There was a young man of Bethlehem in Judah, verse 7, of the family of Judah who was a Levite. And he sojourned there, and the man departed from the town uh, of Bethlehem in Judah to sojourn where he could find a place. And as he journeyed, he came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah. And Micah said to him, where do you come from? He said, I'm a Levite of Bethlehem in Judah, and I am going to sojourn where I may find a place. And Micah said to him, stay with me and be to me a father and a priest, and I will give you ten pieces of silver a year and a suit of clothes and your living. Ten pieces of silver for a year's wages. So imagine how much 1,100 pieces of silver must have been. I'm going to give you the money, clothes, and I'll give you a living. You'll have a place. I'm going to make you my priest, and you can worship Yahweh. You can lead my family to worship Yahweh by bowing down to this silver idol. And the Levite, who, by the way, is from the family of Levi, who is set apart to keep Israel from worshiping foreign gods, he says, great idea. Let's do that. Wow. Well, anyway, it goes on in chapter 18 to show the, the, the members of the tribe of Dan. They happen to be coming through. They find this guy in the house of Micah with his idol, his valuable silver idol. And they say, huh, things seem to be going well for Micah. He's worshiping Yahweh with the silver idol. Something's working. His crops are benefiting from this. His family is, is, is wealthy. Let's take his idol. Let's take his priest. And let's go find ourselves a, a homeland somewhere. And so they steal the idol. And, uh, and, uh, and as they're stealing the idol, the priest says, well, Hey, what are you doing? And they say, Shh, don't tell anybody. Would you rather be priest for one man or priest for a whole nation? And so the Levite looks at this and says, Great idea. He's climbing the corporate ladder. And so he goes and becomes the priest of the Danites in the northern territories with a silver image. And this story is told to us because later it has tremendous significance. The members of the tribe of Dan also established the, the worship of the golden calf and so forth. And they were syncretistic. They, they kind of worshipped the, the way that the people of the ancient lands had worshipped. And they tried to worship Yahweh the same way. And God was not pleased with them. So the Levite from the town of Bethlehem who was lame. That's the story. The first mention of Bethlehem. In the scripture. Then you get the next story, which is uh, even worse. And that's in Judges chapter 19. And 
and I'm not going to read you that story, but the long and short of it is a Levite comes down and gets himself a concubine from Bethlehem. And, uh, and while he's taking her back to the hill country of, of Ephraim, uh, he, um, he encounters some uh, animosity. And uh, not just that, as a, as a foreigner, even though he's not a foreigner in Israel, he's recognized as that by the Benjamites, um, he uh, comes under, under um, threat of personal attack and um, something sim similar to what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah. And uh, anyway, the Levite uh, and his concubine are being hosted by an old man. And uh, the, the townspeople surround them at night, surround the, the, the home of this man, and they demand uh, to have their way with, uh, with, this, with this Levite. And, uh, and so um, it's a bizarre, it's a horrible story. Uh, he sends his concubine out to them, and they abuse her, and in the morning, she's dead. And then he decides to outrage the nation by dividing her up into pieces and sending her all around the country, parts of her all around the country. I know you can't even believe this is in the Bible. It's a horrible story. And, uh, and all of Israel is outraged, and they come as one man uh, to fight against their own brothers, Benjamin. And the first civil war takes place in, uh, in Israel. And, uh, and it all happens. And that's how, the end, uh, that's how the book of Judges ends. It ends with that awful story. Um, uh, mostly ends with that awful story, and um, and then as a result of that, uh, how Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin, is practically wiped out. And it ends. The book of Judges ends with this statement: In those days, there was no king in Israel; everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so, the two mentions of Bethlehem towards the end of the book of Judges give us this idea that something's, something's happening, something's stirring. Why are we being told about Benjamin? If you're reading through the Old Testament, you get to that point. You, of course, you, you can recognize the name because you know about it from future things. But imagine you didn't know what's going to happen there in the future. You're thinking, why is Benjamin emerging? I mean, Benjamin, why is Bethlehem emerging as, a, as an important place? God is beginning to move amongst his people in this place. He's preparing us for something profound. Bethlehem becomes, becomes in some way a microcosm uh, of our whole world. And, uh, and so the story of the book of Ruth, which immediately follows Judges in our Bibles, uh, becomes very important for us as we begin to see what God is going to do. In the two passages we, we just referenced, the book of Judges, there's no real mention of God at all. It seems the people have fallen away from God. I mean, they're calling upon his name, but they're not living according to his prohibitions. or his, They're not taking permission from what he said. They're taking permission to do what he told them not to do. And, uh, and I have to say, uh, just in context of our own world, I think uh, when it comes to worship, there is, um, by and large, across our Western world, there has been this shift, this movement away from purity in worship and genuine uh, worship of the one true God to this, to this systematic uh, uh, removal of intimacy and the, the development of a structure that looks Christian but isn't. And, um, and that has all the trappings of the Christian religion, but, but no, no genuine pursuit of God's, of God's wisdom and his ways. And it is, it is um, uh, 
you, you can see notable cases of, of uh, promotion where leaders have given up purity to gain prominence. And I think that this is important for us to see because in many ways our culture reflects what was happening back then. So when we read the Bible, uh, it's thousands of years old, but there's practical applications that can take place in our own, in our own uh, uh, sense, in our own world. Um, the other thing that we see is this, is this falling away from all dignity, all common sense, all value for the individuals. There's a craving, a drivenness, a, a sexual perversion in the culture that has driven people insane to where they are so hungry for this that they're willing to even destroy an innocent, an innocent person. And then there's outrage. And the whole nation is 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 brought to this place of outrage because of the because of the um, uh, the pr the progression of sin, how far it's gone, until something, until the outrage comes. It seems nobody really cares that the men of Benjamin have gone so far from what God had ordained for them, and uh, but it it it. They needed somebody to display in front of all of them how absolutely awful and atrocious this was in the most, in the most offensive way before they did something about it. And what did they do? They responded by going and putting to death an entire tribe, almost an entire tribe. So the response to the, the perversion of a nation was war. And... Again, this is, this is given to us not in a positive light. This is, not a, this is not the way that God has ordained for them to deal with it. The way that God has ordained for them to deal with it is actually through faithful priesthood, representing God well, calling the people to faithful worship, and teaching the children the values that God had given them in His Torah. That had failed, and as a result, every man's free to do whatever he wants to. He's free to use his liberties in whatever pleases him. And out of that place of total freedom has come the disregard for other people and their value. And um, I don't know that we're there. Our nation has probably been through many cycles of this sort of thing. Uh, right now, uh, people are definitely... Uh, vocal about the rights of of others, um, and, and yet there is a uh, there is a uh, uh, there's a lot of outrage. There's a lot of people saying, "Look at what our nation is doing. Look at look at how the, the value systems have changed. Look at how our 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 um, uh, particularly our sexual ethics how they've how they've changed." And there's a lot of outrage about that. And as a result, we we sit on the brink of of um, well. I, I, I don't mean this literally, but we, we, we sort of sit on the brink of a civil war, really, when it comes to values. And, uh, and, and it has been that way for the last decade, hasn't it? It's very troubling. What is God going to do about it? How do we fix this? 
It's into that world that this story of Ruth gets told. This, this happens, what happens in the, in the book of Ruth happens in the midst of that, when every man is doing what's right in his own eyes, when civil war is breaking out, when people have turned away from God, and into that, this story. The story of Ruth is a beautiful, a beautiful story. It's not without, um, it's not without its detractors, though. In our current, in our current world, there are those who consider the Book of Ruth to be very dangerous. It's like a Cinderella story, you know, where the only solution for the poor, the poor girl is that she marries a rich man, and uh, and so there's a there's a lot of um, angry. Uh, uh, um, feminist hermeneutic that takes a look at this passage at this book and says mm -mm, this won't work we should not teach this this is very bad don't teach this one from the pulpits I actually get really angry when I hear that because I love the love story of the book of Ruth I love the the, the beauty of the and the simplicity of this sort of ancient world where where um, a, a widow and her widowed daughter-in-law find redemption um, at the hand of a, of a faithful relative, but all through the, the beautiful workings of God, the, the sort of the, the, uh, the providence of God manifested in their lives. And I, I just love the beauty of it. It seems so practical. It seems so real. It's, it's just an honest story about something that took place that's just beautiful. And, uh, and I hate the fact uh, that there are those who become so angry um, that they can't, they can't read the beauty into this. They just, they, they, they begin to pull away uh, from it, tear it away, because it doesn't look right in a 21st century uh, Western society. I say to you, as you read the book of Ruth, try not to be anachronistic, try not to read your value system in there, and, uh, and don't be over, overwhelmed by the fact that there's a sort of a, a, a class differentiation in there, that there's, there's this um, uh, sort of difference between, uh, between the... Um, the indigenous people and then the foreigners. So you've got this uh, immigrant story that's in there that has merit and doesn't have merit. You can become upset by that. You can see the difference between men and women and their value in society and, and so forth. And you, you, you could become caught up in that, but don't. Please don't. Don't be anachronistic. Just go back and read it and say, wow, this is for the society in which this took place. This story is beautiful. And what it shows me on a broader level is that God works in our society in the, uh, it, it, despite all the issues that our society may have. This story that takes place shows God's working in Bethlehem, where we've just had two stories that I told you that have been really awful about what happened in Bethlehem. False worship, syncretistic worship, where they've joined sort of ancestral things and, and God together and tried to create a new religion. There's that, and then there's this awful story of, of perversion and, and civil war, and God's in the midst of that and said, I still love my people. I'm still going to work in amongst my people. So although we're not really going to get into the book of Ruth today because I've already got my time up, here's what I want to tell you. The story shows us that God is not done with these people. And in the same way, God's not done with you and he's not done with me. We live in a culture that for many of us uh, it looks really scary. If, if, you've, uh, if you've grown up uh, somewhat uh, conservative, then uh, these, the value systems that are espoused by the current generation and, and by our current leaders and our new governor and, and all these different people, if you look at that, you could be terrified and say, my Lord, what has happened to my, what's happened to my home? Where are we going? 
And uh, you could say we're on the brink of civil war. You could remember back to January 6th, you know, a couple of years ago and say, what happened? What is that? Is that happening again? And you could look at the, at the, at the, 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 the 2022's movement towards, towards sexual liberties and say, my God, it looks just like Israel in the old days. What's going to happen? Is there going to be bloodshed and so forth? And I say to you, no. In God's story, in the midst of all of that, telling you all that was going on that was bad and introducing Bethlehem to you, God comes in beautifully, quietly, softly, and he tells a beautiful love story about redemption. So as I introduce this idea to you, the idea is don't become so caught up in the failure of the society around you Instead, recognize that God is looking at individual hearts. And there are actually places where God really is moving. He really is moving in these small, little, backwater places. And he's moving beautifully to care for individuals who have no societal standing whatsoever. Take courage, because that means that you actually matter to God. You are not invisible to God. In spite of the whole world going to the bad place in a handbasket all around you, you still matter to God. You still matter to God. The story of Ruth is about a woman who loses a husband and her two sons in a foreign land because famine has driven her from her home. She becomes, she becomes a widow which is the lowest caste, the lowest level of societal influence. She is desperate, doesn't have any means of income. How is she going to make money? She can't run a business. She's not, she has no land. She has no place to call her own. The only way for her to make money would be to sell her body, perhaps. Unless she can find somebody somewhere, some family member somewhere, who will take pity on her and give her the opportunity to find her place again. She has two daughters-in-law who were married to her sons who are now grieving the death of those husbands of theirs also and they are foreigners her sons married foreigners something they weren't supposed to do the bible prohibited it god said don't marry the moabites in particular but her sons married moabites and now she has these two moabite girls that she's supposed to be responsible for on some level they can't provide for her. How is she going to provide for them? She has nothing to give them. No inheritance. There's absolutely nothing. Not only are they widows, but they have no home, no money, and no hope. They left a godless place to go to a godless place. There is no hope. But God, he's still there. He is still there. And he visits Bethlehem. And we'll talk more about that next week. For you, please know, God wants to visit your home. Could you make your home a Bethlehem for him? I don't think you have to. I think God already knows where you live. Bethlehem is a metaphor for where we all live. And from that place, God is going to bring redemption, not just for us, 
but for the whole world. It's a powerful story. It's a beautiful story. Get excited about it. So you read the book of Ruth. I'm going to give you homework. Read it again. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the way in which you encourage us. It's, oh God, it just exceeds our expectations. Thank you, Lord, that you care. Thank you, Lord, that you're not intimidated by the fact that our world is following its own way. We have no king, and we're doing what's right in our own eyes. And we have not followed your, your ways. And we have done what you said don't do, and we have not done what you did say we should do. And Lord, our communities are lost, and we repent before you as members of our society that have fallen from you, O oh Lord. But as Richard read in your word, we have all fallen from your grace. Every one of us has sinned and fallen from the glory of God. Thank you that you do not leave us there. Thank you that you do not leave us in turmoil, in civil war, in unrest, in a place of danger. You do not leave us in that place, but you come to us quietly, providentially, unbeknownst to us. You lead us, O oh Lord, because you love us. And Father, I pray that each one of these listening here today will begin to experience their own redemption that you will begin to show up in each and every one of our lives, in every one of our circumstances, in a way like you did with Naomi and with Ruth. As we read these stories, as we read the story again, and as we prepare ourselves for next week for reading in the text, Lord, I pray that you would begin to show us that you care about us also. I ask for your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen.